Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we welcome Brad Edwards, professor of trombone at Arizona State University. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined as always by Nick Schwartz. We had a bit of a sabbatical for the last couple weeks because, Nick, you decided to be really cool and get on that COVID bandwagon everybody's been talking about. Yep, I caught the COVID. I can't believe it went this long. And I believe I caught it at the vaccination center. So what <laughs> what luck is that? So I, I got my first shot and then and then came down with COVID. So luckily it was a pretty mild case. Still wasn't very fun. I don't recommend it. I can say that. <laughs> and then I, I ended up giving it to my wife, unfortunately. But she had an even milder case than I did. And she's fully recovered and so am I. So very thankful for that. I am thankful too. You just had to be ironic and, and get it after getting the vaccine. Yes. Be cool. Of course. So we had a really wonderful talk with Brad Edwards. It was one of those talks where me and Nick texted each other right afterwards and we were just like, that was great. He he gave a lot of wisdom about just the craft of teaching. And we, we got into a lot of great topics with him and learned a lot about his motivations for putting out so much publishing work. Yeah, I just, I really enjoyed talking with him because he's just one of those people that has all these little nuggets of wisdom. And I, I think it's just, he, he made our job very easy as interviewers, that's for sure. Absolutely. So Nick, we've been getting a lot of emails about the 2021 Trombone Retreat, Third Coast Trombone Retreat. And we just wanted to address that we are efforting to make this happen and we are very optimistic it's going to happen. There's still a lot of moving parts, so we can't formally announce anything yet. So stay tuned to our website, tromboneretreat.com. Yeah, we'll blast any information we have all over the interwebs. We'll talk about it in the podcast. Any way we can get this information out, we want to make sure we do this right. We want to make sure that if we're able to have it in person, which we're very optimistic about, that we're able to do it safely and we're able to do it where everyone can feel comfortable. So keep being patient, please. And we'll get an answer out there soon, hopefully. So, Nick, no one ever said that being a trombone retreat podcast listener didn't have perks. I've always said that. Oh, well, that's good. Because by listening to this episode, you're going to get a special offer code from Houghton Horns to get 15% off all of the Brad Edwards collection of books. The whole canon, the Brad Edwards canon. <laughs> <laughs> so visit HoughtonHorns.com, where you can also browse trombones, accessories, consignment trombones, vintage trombones, mouthpieces, and shop to your heart's delight. Use the code BRADRETREAT to get 15% off. Enjoy Mr. Edwards.
thanks for rescheduling and rescheduling again. Um, obviously wasn't planning on getting COVID. So how are you doing? Um, <clears throat> I would say 80% better. Uh, it, physically I feel okay. It's more like the mental fatigue is still pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I, I, I had it light. Luckily, you know, it, it could have been a lot worse. Sure. So we, we appreciate you being flexible. That's, uh, it made it, made our lives easy. <laughs> so, so, uh, I don't believe, do you both know each other? Uh, no, uh, I don't think, think we've ever officially met. No, you're about to. So, <laughs> well, Sebastian, <laughs> thanks, Nick. <laughs> so how you, how you doing over there? How, are you in Arizona right now? Yes, that's correct. You know, both my wife and I have been vaccinated. I guess these days you have to immediately talk about COVID when someone asks how you're doing. Yeah. And we actually, last weekend, got on an aeroplane and oh, flew to a place and did a concert. Uh, heard of those things. Yeah. All of How those things. That? I remember them in the before times. <laughs> <laughs> so that was nice. And uh, you know, our two uh, kids are in their 20s and they're living here with us, have been for the year. And uh, my son just got, uh, Arizona just opened up vaccines to everybody. Good. So he got an appointment and my daughter's trying to. So that'll be good. Must be nice having your kids home all year. It is. You know, we just started being empty nesters and we're kind of resigned to that. And all of a sudden it's family dinner together every night, which is great for the soul and not great for the waistline, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I saw some, I saw some chart the other day that said like the average amount of weight people gained during this year and it's not good yeah yeah my wife and i have been doing that intermittent fasting thing and dropped a lot but then family dinner took precedence and it came right back like 18 hours 18 hours off or like what sort of fasting you just had a curiosity you know we just started skipping dinner oh wow we just eat because you know if for a while there was like oh what's for dinner tonight and suddenly thought nothing and, uh, you know, you you go to bed earlier cause you're just tired and hungry and you just want to go to sleep <laughs> and, 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 and cranky. <laughs> yeah. And then you have a nice breakfast, nice lunch. And it, it, once your body get used to it, it was okay. You know, it was just like, that's how it is. Yeah. I always see the biggest difference when I skip dinner as far as if I'm trying to lose a little bit. Yeah. Something about just like sleeping all night on, on like a giant full stomach is not the greatest thing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like eating like a European, you know, the, the dinner being the lightest meal of the day. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That'd so, be nice. But let's, let's start way back when. Can you tell us kind of how you grew up and how you came to music, how you came to trombone? Oh, golly. My, my sister. I wanted to play trumpet. My sister said, no, there's too many kids playing trumpet. I said, okay. Actually, I think it was first drums. And my sister said, no, there's too many kids play drum. And so then it was trumpet and then it was trombone. And once, once that was sister approved. Uh, that was that. So that was fifth grade, southeastern Pennsylvania, smaller high school. And where I caught fire was uh, when I was 15, and I, I was a sort of a last-minute sub for a summer music camp in Vermont called Kinhaven. Oh, yeah. And and uh, I went up there literally with my Bundy beginning band trombone for a seven-week music camp, and the first night they sight-read Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And I was like... It was actually written for, for the Bundy trombone. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I knew that. Even at that age, I was very interested in historical accuracy, you know. Of course. <laughs> so, so that's where I kind of caught fire. Uh, was just wow, this is actually pretty cool. And then you know, it goes on. You know, different colleges and different uh, playing experiences. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. You know, we we 
look at you as as such like a, a prominent voice as a trombone professor at a university right now. But, you know, looking at your background, you're going to the Hart School, you're going to Peabody, you're going to Cincinnati Conservatory, all very, you know, performance heavy schools are focused. And of course, you, you go on to, to perform uh, in the military. But when, when you when you first started setting out, when you first decided, like, hey, I think I want to do this music thing, did you have kind of a, a, a certain identity in mind that you're going for? I started my undergraduate convinced that I was, everybody else was 10 feet tall and I was way behind in the race and I could never possibly catch up. Reflecting on it now because of that summer camp, I realized, oh, I actually might've been ahead of the race, but I was convinced that I was so far behind I could never catch up. And so I had multiple majors. I was a, a music management major and a trombone performance major. And it was even like taking classes towards an MBA. So I was, I was thinking, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not good enough. I'm not going to be able to make it. And then, but I played in every single ensemble I possibly could. I mean, a brass quintet, a modern music group, an early music group, orchestra, everything, jazz band. I was just like, I'm going to play as much as I can. Because in my mind, it's like, this is, this is pretty much it. After this, I'm going to go over to the dark side of the force and, and be joint management. And I got to the end of that. And I thought, I remember this very clearly. I thought, if I don't at least give it a try, I'll never be able to enjoy a concert again because I'll be sitting in the audience looking at the people on stage and saying, I could have, maybe I could have been one of those people. I had to, so I had to try. So it was sort of like getting on a diving board to over an empty swimming pool and say, here it goes. And I'm just, I'm just going to dive. And so I went for my master's in performance and, and just started practicing like crazy. I wish I could go back in time and grab that guy by the shirt and say, here are the really dumb things that you're doing. Uh, <laughs> don't we all? Yeah, man. But but I mean, I did end up, you know, right at the end of my master's, getting a job with uh, with a military band. And at that point, my mindset was, oh, I'm not going to do a military band. But then, you know, I fell in love and uh, with a certain horn player, and we had a pact that if there were ever openings, you know, horn and trombone in close proximity, we had to we had to do it. And they had a horn opening and a trombone opening. So there we go took the audition and, and that's how things develop. Were you in Cincinnati at the time when yeah. you took that audition? The correct. Yeah. I so just with straight from school. Straight from school. Yeah. I didn't even hadn't finished my comps yet. I had to drive back in a really bad snowstorm to take my comps. It was those things you tell your kids not to do. Like if it's snowing so hard that you can't actually see the road in front of you and your wife has to roll down the window and tell you the guardrail is getting closer or farther. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> that's it's like you have to go back and take the test. You can't stop. So, yeah. I mean, knowing myself when I was that age, part of me, I'd be curious what you were thinking. Part of me would be like, I just want a job. I really don't want to drive back in a blizzard and take these tests right now. Right. Did any part of you would be like, eh. eh, I wanted to finish it. You know, I wanted to get it done and, and just put a check mark by it. Yeah, you were ninety nine percent of the way there. You might as well just uh, yeah, just get take that one last step. And, and uh, you know, that school, like a lot of schools, they make you charge a fee for what they call continuing enrollment. And I was like, oh. well, I'm not going to pay that every semester. I'm going to go clear this thing out and be done with it. So, what was your Air Force experience like? Um, you know, it was. Uh, I remember saying to people that. I felt like the military and music were like oil and water. They can coexist in the same space, but they can never truly mix. And, and you know, it, it was, I, I, I'm a lot of it, you're playing patriotic stuff. And it, it, to you, it feels a little schlocky. Like here we are playing Wind Beneath My Wings for the 74th time. 
Um, That's Nick's favorite song, though. (laughs) That that is a good song, I got to say. But then, you know, there's another side of it, which is, you know, when you get on these tours and you go into a little town and you see people pouring out to go to a concert, people that would never go to a concert if it were not a military band. And they are there all together. And you're playing this patriotic stuff that you're like, here we go again. And you look in the audience and you see guys crying. You're like, wow, I guess uh, we're having an effect here. So, you know, I think it came down to what was your mindset going into it. If you realize that, yeah, you actually are performing a service and and doing something for people that would otherwise not go to an orchestra concert or anything like that, then it's like, yeah, yeah, that's good. I can do that. Got to tell a story, though. Got to tell a story. You can't can't talk about the Air Force Band without having at least one good story. I've got a bunch uh, and a note to shout out to Lindsay Smith. No, I'm not going to tell that story. So we'll just let that one sit. <laughs> <laughs> now I want you to tell that story, whatever it is. <laughs> oh, he likes to embarrass me about it. But um, no, the one I'm going to tell is we were in, I think, uh, Tennessee at Middle Tennessee State University. and Murfreesboro. Yeah, man. And then, uh, Whoa. and of course, you know, like a lot of cases, we, we, you know, the bus would drive past the art center on the way to the gym. Uh, because you can hold more people in a gym. And so we're there on the basketball court, and they had programmed the Hinastera Harp Concerto for harp and military band in a basketball court, because why not? Um, the harp is amplified. And so we're in the middle. It's a good piece, actually. And so we're playing it. And all of a sudden, halfway through the piece, people start standing up. I was like, what? And then they start turning around. And then they start clapping. It's like, uh, we're still going here. We're st- over here. And what was happening was right down the middle aisle was Miss Tennessee. And she was, she was sashaying down those steps and, and waving to everyone and smiling. And they were all clapping for her. And we're like, so we're just like the house band? And, and She's like, this is my song. I got, I got a strut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a special moment in my life. Hey, I, my first job ever uh, was bussing tables. In a, and the waitress at this restaurant was Miss Michigan. There you go. Yeah. So, hey, there you go. Before or after the crown? Uh, after. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't make it very far, you know. <laughs> I, I like what you said, though, about it, it. You know, I get to play a lot of these patriotic concerts as well. And, you know, when you see it on the, the calendar, you know, you may shrug your shoulders for a second. But the second, like you said, you, you, you go to these small towns, I get to play in a bunch of tiny towns with, with the brass band. And anyone that's gotten to perform like Armed Forces Salute and just feels the energy in the room when you see like a 95-year-old man stand up proudly when he hears his military song and everyone applaud for him. I mean, there, there's nothing better than that. Yeah. It's sincere, you know. Uh, and we can have a long discussion about you know, the military and, and, you know, America's role in the world. And I'm not going to go there. But... <laughs> In that moment, that emotion is sincere. And I think you, you've, you know, I've done enough concerts where, and I'm sure you have too, where you're kind of wondering, is the audience, are they really paying attention? Are they here mentally? Or are they just here to be seen? And so when you have the feeling like, wow, I'm having a direct emotional impact on another human being, that's, you know, you can't just throw that away. I, I mean, this isn't a military th- story, but a friend of mine was on tour with a brass quintet in they were in some, you know, no name town in Colorado. And, you know, again, just thinking, oh, here we go. Going to play this for the you know 700th time or whatever. And this old lady comes up to him afterwards and goes, that concert almost made it worth living here. 
<laughs> Thanks. It's like I think there's a, a nasty Valentine that floats around out there. It says something to the effect of, as long as I have you, I'm strong enough to go on living with you. <laughs> something like that is like, uh, thank you? Yeah, exactly. So while you were in the Air Force, well, first of all, how long were you in the Air Force? I just did a four-year shift. The mindset, it was four years at a time, and the mindset that was spoke by many people was, you're either going to do four or you're going to do 20. Because once you've done eight, you're so close to that retirement that why not hang on and, and get the benefits? And and I saw guys who were coming up to their 20, and they were really kind of freaking out. Like, what am I going to do for a living? You know, one guy went into HVAC. Another guy was going to be a middle school band director. And they had kids. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to make a blind leap away from certain income, I'd rather do it before we have kids. And, and try and get myself set in some other way. And I had decided I wasn't going to do, you know, the full, the full run. So I figured it's just better to go now and make that, that another leap of faith, I guess, and then try and get things stable. Was there something, and you don't have to go into great detail if you don't want to, or do, but was there something about the music making in the Air Force that, I mean, you weren't getting that you personally needed? Or what did you envision... When you left, did you have the idea of, like, I want to go straight into university teaching? No. Well, not really. I mean, okay, so uh, another story. We were doing a summer concert, and we were doing a medley called Grand Ole Opry, Our Country Heritage, which is the acronym is Gooch. And Gooch Gooch had been done many times. And so we were there in a summer concert, and we turned the page, and there was a squashed bug on my music. And someone next to me said, oh, I remember when somebody squashed that bug and and started talking about this thing that happened, you know, seven years ago or whatever, and still using the same music. And I suddenly had this vision of myself in 20 years looking at that same squashed bug on that same arrangement. And suddenly just like my brain said, I I don't want to do this for 16 more years. Um, And so it just kind of crystallized there. Yeah. That that says a lot about you. I mean, because... There's plenty of people that would be perfectly content with that stability, especially in the arts, and and that's totally fine. But you strike me as someone that maybe through this experience and through your different positions, maybe you're always just kind of craving the variety yeah, and the exploring. Yeah. There was a clarinetist in the band who had set up a, a chamber music series, and I felt, okay, that's how he's feeding his soul. Is he's doing the job, he's putting on the suit, he does a good job, does what is asked of him, but then he has this other thing that he does that defeat his soul. And I think that's a thing that we all, we need to do. There's a piano colleague of mine uh, down the hallway who has a cartoon outside his door, and it's just a concert pianist sitting down apparently to play a new concerto or a new piece. And the, the, the thought bubble says, I really don't enjoy this anymore. And then the note on it said, yeah, and then the note on it is something defective. That's when you know you're a professional. And I think that's a sad cartoon because I haven't really, I mean, I guess it comes, you you choose your mindset. You know, if you choose to focus on the negatives, then, then yeah, you're going to, you're going to see the negatives. Susan Smith, who's second in the Nashville Symphony, said something really profound at one of these workshops that I heard. She said, you know, when you're working with people for a long time, Try to see the, the best things in them, not the worst things. It's natural to see the worst things in the people and get down about that. But if you 
It's a discipline to try and see the best things in the people that are around you. And you're going to be a happier person if you do it. It reminds me a lot of orchestra life, uh, what, what you're talking about. Just it can, it can be a grind playing in an orchestra too. And you can choose to look at it through a negative lens of like, ugh, here we go. Another Beethoven five, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And I remember when I was at Interlochen, um, I was at the arts Academy and Joe Alessi came as a guest and someone asked him like, you know, you have your dream job. Like you get to play in an orchestra every day. How is that? And he was very frank with us. He said, you know, most of the time it's amazing. He said every now and then you show up and say, I don't want to play this rehearsal. This is not what I want to be doing right now. But you do have to remind yourself there's a thousand other people that were right behind you that would kill to do it. And so he was honest on all levels. And he said, you know, when I get in that mode, I try to listen and I try to enjoy my colleagues playing. And then I also have projects, solo projects and recording and publishing and all sorts of stuff that I pour myself into equally so that I'm well diverse in my career. And that really stuck with me as uh, I couldn't believe it, first of all, that someone would have anything to negative to say about the career. And then he turned it into something positive by, you know, by saying, okay, I'm not going to sit here and be negative. I'm going to find ways to, as you said, feed my soul. Yeah. One time I heard a person say professionalism is taking a piece that you don't like and playing it so well that others are convinced that you really like it. And so I that, love that. And it's like that. you're not focused on yourself and your needs. You know, you aren't important. You're 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 a conduit. You know. Yeah. Just like great actors have saved a lot of really terrible scripts. Yeah. It's I like think a lot job. about actors on well, not now on Broadway, but you know, if you're doing a show eight shows a week, at some point, you know, you're daydreaming while you're yeah. delivering those lines. Uh, you've done the show a thousand times or whatever, and yet for that audience member. That's their first time. And they paid a good amount of money to have that experience. And so you're not thinking about your needs. Well, I, uh, I think about my friends who talk about the real greats on Broadway that, you know, midway or, midway or deep into the run, they, instead of doing the daydreaming, they do little things that really only people have seen the show multiple times like the musicians, like Bernadette Peters. I heard stories about her every night. She would improv something and you never knew when it was coming and she'd throw something in there and just like crack up the band, you know, and like it, not for the purpose of cracking up the band, but also to keep her fresh, you know? Right. And you know, that's why she's 70 something and still has a vibrant career. You know? Yeah. Who are the actors and the producers, the stars? I'm blanking on their names. Nathan Lane. The, the, well, the Matthew original Broderick. one. Or? Yeah. Nathan Lane. And who was opposite him? Matthew Broderick. So Matthew Broderick. So uh, there's a great podcast by uh, Mike Birbiglia, comedian. Mm-hmm. And he had Nathan Lane on. And he said that, that uh, Matthew Broderick could say things under his voice that wouldn't be picked up as microphone and would like provide running commentary on Nathan Lane's performance while we're on stage. So Nathan Lane would pause a little bit longer and Matthew Broderick would say, oh, so that's how we're doing it tonight? <laughs> and apparently he got Nathan Lane to crack up like, Almost every time, and Nathan Lane could ever make never make him crack up. But I think that they probably had an absolute blast doing that. Well, so uh, basically, what it's coming down to, the way you describe it, and I think I agree, of course, is at the end of the day, th- these kind of things are a choice. You know, in, in every situation we're in, sometimes the easiest thing in the world is to look at the negative. You know, if you've been playing cats for twenty years straight, eight shows a week it's going to be very easy to see the negative, right? But these little things of choosing to be grateful and then choosing to just 
find little aspects of your life that fulfill your soul, like you're talking about, is just really important, but actually literally takes effort, right? Yeah. Grateful. Being grateful is a discipline that takes work, but it's, it's so important. And our natural, I think it's just human nature to focus on the things that aren't right and that you need to make better. And then you can get yourself in a spiral going downward um, of negativity. And so you really have to work at being grateful for the things that you have um, and being hopeful. You know, those are powerful forces, but they don't auto start in most people. Well, you know, we're taught from a young age to be so critical too, to be self-critical, to be critical of music. I think it's, uh, I think it's only a short step away to go from critical to not grateful, you know? Yeah. That relates to a thing I do as a teacher that I call comparative praise or conceivably comparative criticism. But when it's, once the one thing I, I, I don't love in a masterclass that I, any masterclass I watch where a student plays and the teacher goes, the, you know, the, the famous teacher in front of the audience goes, yeah, that was great. And it's just such a, like a throwaway comment, you know? I mean, I, I've caught myself doing it too, but when I'm teaching, what I love to do, I mean, no matter how good or bad it is on some universal scale, there's a moment that's better than another moment. And so what I like to do is zoom in and say, you know, this phrase right here, I really liked, you seemed like you were, it was singing more here. I would really wish, I, that was beautiful, because there's a way you could do that over here as well. And it's amazing how many times, you know, the student would go, oh yeah, that's my favorite part. You know, and so hmm. I find a way to like say, this, what you did here was just really great. Or do you remember those attacks, those, the, how clean the articulations were in that exercise? Man, it'd be great if you could do that, you know, in this. And, 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 or why do you think it isn't the same? And nine times out of ten, they go, oh, yeah, I'm just really tensing up right now and I'm not breathing. But I let them discover that on their own. So I think teaching is more like guiding them to make the discovery themselves as opposed to just telling them. Because telling, eh, you know, it's, it's okay, but it probably won't stick. It's like a checklist that they will be trying to remember rather than if you like feel it, if you, if you got there. Like it's the same concept of I'm obsessed with my GPS. <laughs> um, it's like even when I know how to get to places, I don't know. There's something about my brain is just like I want to know exactly how long and I want to go the most efficient way possible. Yeah. But anytime I try to just figure it out how to get someplace, I will always remember how I got there. Right. Like it always sticks longer and I never need directions there again. But if I use GPS, I'll never know how to get there. Right. There's a, a book called, oh, was it? I think it's called The Glass Cage, which is really fascinating. It's about our increasing dependence on automated technology and our increasing trust of it. And they tell that one story of a early plane crash where, you know, the readings on the, the sensors were just absolute wrong. But the pilots did not use their common sense and just followed those readings and drove the plane right into the ground or flew the plane right into the ground. But a sensor, a wind sensor had broken off. And so it was telling them that they weren't going fast enough. And so they, instead of using good common flying sense, they they just, well, that's what the sensor says. And so I'm going to, you know, follow that. And it, it's really easy. I worry about this transition to self-driving cars because, you know, eventually, you know, I, I assume we'll get to a point where the things are completely reliable and almost never fail. But there's going to be that difficult transition phase where you have to pay attention because it's 99% good. But if you've got a 100-mile trip, eh, there might be a mile in there that gets pretty interesting. So, <laughs> But I think a lot of people, you know, once the car is driving itself, you know, you're going to start to become a passive receiver because it's, it's tedious, you know, especially if you're driving a long distance. And we've seen those YouTube videos of, a, you know, a guy in a Tesla sound asleep in L.A. traffic mm-hmm. while the car's driving him home. 
Yeah. Oh, that's my dream, though. <laughs> Especially from a gig. That'd be nice. Oh, yeah. That, that kind of would be nice. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I think about, I was just, literally just thinking about this today that I saw a documentary somewhat recently, a, kind of a mini documentary about becoming a taxi driver in London. Uh-huh. And they still, at least at the point of this documentary, still make them take tests on roadmaps. And it's tough. Very tough, especially London. It's yeah. very windy streets. And, yeah. you know, New York is a little bit easier in that way, but still not easy. Um, right. But I don't think you have to do that in New York anymore. I think that they've allowed GPS. And they allow GPS in taxis in London, but they still make them take that test. Sure. And I was thinking about that documentary because I took a taxi once. I don't know why this all popped in my head, but I took a taxi once where the taxi driver didn't know how to get to the airport because his uh, his phone had died. And he's like, I don't know how to get to the airport. And I yep. was like, you don't know how to get to the airport? That's like, the glass cage. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Yeah. So how how do you turn off that instinct as a teacher, which I think we've all felt, where you know exactly what they're doing wrong, you know exactly how to fix it, you want to just tell them, hey, do this, do this with your embouchure, do this, articulate this way. And we know that that can have varying levels of success. And like you're saying, like, I've I've had so much more success too by letting guiding the student to discover it themselves. Like, how do you shut that off? And what are some? I mean, what strategies do you use to help them get there? I mean, at some point, it's instinct, getting to know the student and finding out, you know, okay, what I do, what do I think is going to work with this person? What do I think is going to work with this person? Um, I like the analogy. I, in college, one of my jobs was a security guard at a residential complex, and so you walked around with this gigantic key ring, and they had you. You know, go around, open this door, go around. And so you're there with your 20 keys, trying different keys, trying to find what fits the lock. And I think that's, that's just like teaching. I mean, you need keys to fit the lock. And so when a student is struggling with, like, wah, you know, so well, let me try this key. Ah, it didn't work. Let me try this key. Ah, it didn't work. Let me try this key. That didn't work. You, you want to have a lot of keys on your ring because what works brilliantly with one student, maybe in the very lesson before, and you're so excited, you try it with a new student, it's like, it doesn't even work at all. Mm. So... You need to have a lot of approaches. The other thing, something you, you said, one of my sayings is that words are cages in which thoughts are trapped. Mm. So we say a word and we know to ourselves exactly what it means, but that word doesn't necessarily have the same meaning. I mean, teaching would be so much easier if you had a Vulcan mind melt. Mm. You know, I could I could just play a lip slur. They, they put their hand on my head and they go, Oh, that's totally different than what I do, you know. But even then, physically, we aren't all the same. And then there's also, you know, um, cases where people describe what they are absolutely certain they're doing on the inside of their mouth. And then they do that that study over in Germany with the MRI machine, and they look at the MRI and they're like, "That's not what I thought I was doing." So, you know, I'm, I'm very a very big fan of the whole, the whole inner game thing. That as much as possible, we want to focus on the result. And, and our analysis should be in the sound. And then I think of direct physical explanation is kind of a Pandora's box. Like, that's not where I'm going to go first, and I'm going to try not to go there at all. Although sometimes you go there and like, oh, yeah, that worked. Okay, good. You know, but I don't like the, the, the complex physical descriptions of things. At least that's not my go-to because there's so much chance for misinterpretation. So many variables. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I do too. Because that's the one thing that you can at least try to get on the same page about as far as this is what 
we're going for. This is what it should sound like. I can at least record it and play it back to you and we can talk about it. Right. Right. But all those variables. But, well, when they're stuck and they that. can't get the results, then you have to open up the box a little bit and, and try. Lift the hood. Yeah, lift the hood a little bit and, and, and some demons get out, but maybe a, you know, a good little angel comes out too, you know. <laughs> I've, I've had many arguments with colleagues about this, like where the, they're only their lens is all through the physical mm-hmm. and they're great players. Yeah. And, and I'll argue, I'll say, they'll say, yeah, I've been, I've been trying to explain exactly how it happens and they're just not getting it. And I'll, I'll to one of their students and I'll say, well, some people that really helps and other people that really screws with their head, yep. you know, I think it's, yeah, just, just like you said about the keys fitting the lock, you, you have to figure out exactly what is going to work for each student. I think yeah. that's great. Another thing, this is a funny thing to do in a lesson if you teach a lot, is sometimes you're describing something and the student kind of goes, uh-huh, 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 and you realize they're not listening to you. And so I'll just stop and say, hey, what did I just say? And they go, uh, uh, error? <laughs> <laughs> totally, 100%. And I'm like, well, can you tell me more? Uh you know, so you have to find a way to keep them engaged. I mean, one of the things I, I, I do is I, I can get, I can come up with some really weird analogies in lessons, like just bizarre. But the stranger it is, the more likely they're going to remember it. So, I mean, just the other day, um, I had a guy, he was working on Ride of the Valkyries, and it was a Zoom lesson, and he wasn't holding out the long notes because, you know, when we get the long notes, why count? And so... I, I stood up. I don't know if I can demonstrate this here, but I was kind of like, you know, like the horse who thumps his foot. I was like, bum, bum, ba, dum, bum, 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 ba, dum, bum, 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 ba, dum. And I, I just thumped my, my foot on the floor, and he was laughing. And I said, okay, your turn. And so he stood up, and he was thumping his foot on the floor. And I said, okay, now don't thump your foot like that, but in your mind, thump your foot. Boom. Rhythm was perfect. Because his mind had something to do. And because it was weird, I believe he's more likely to remember that when he goes off into the world of Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram. Your favorites, right? The great mind erasers. (laughs) Wow. We got a couple sci-fi references going on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're in the land of like where all the alien sightings were, right? No, not quite. That's, That's New Mexico. Oh, it's New Mexico. It's the same. What's the, is that the, is that a different state than Arizona? I, I can't discuss that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know too much. Yeah. I can neither confirm nor deny. Oh, of course. So going through the whole process of becoming a professor and going through the, the pro, for, for those that haven't been through it before, and I imagine it, it might've changed as you got more things on your resume, but how was the experience when you first did it? Did, did you know what to expect no. when you first started applying? No. First of all, I got exceedingly lucky because I, I made the final three on my first job application. And later, you know, I had a professor say to me, oh my gosh, you got in the finals in the first application. I was like, yeah, is that not a thing? And, and it was uh, Kansas University, um, KU. And I just, I was finishing up with the Air Force Band and I, you know, sent in recording and sent in my materials. I had no idea what I was doing. It wasn't even looking at jobs. I had a friend who said, hey, there's this job. Maybe you should apply. And I interviewed, but they were just like so, the environment was just so mellow and pleasant. I was like, ooh, I like this. (laughs) I could see doing this. I've discovered lately, more recently, that not all academic environments are mellow or pleasant. But uh, What do you mean? (laughs) What are you talking about in review? Oh, Um, geez. (laughs) But that made me kind of like 
that affixed it in my brain that, that maybe this is a path I wanted to follow. And I always loved teaching. So that was a natural thing. So that's uh, after the Air Force Band, I went for my doctorate, you know, because I figured that was, you know, that's your ticket to get in the door. And I started applying to jobs. So, so you started with uh, University of Northern Iowa? Yes. And how long were you there? Three years. Three years. And following me, there was a new trombone teacher, I think, every year for about five or six years. Wow. That's where uh, that's where John Engelkiss went to school. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Jody Davis. Yep. Yep. Northern Iowa. Didn't, Lots of stuff to do there, huh? Didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't Paul Pollard teach there for a minute? He was, yeah, after me was Bruce Tychinski, and then mm-hmm. it was Paul Pollard. And then I think Will Kimball was there at one point, and Nancy Vogt was there at one point, and I've lost track. I mean, it's it's been a real revolving door. Oh, very cool. And then from there, you went to South Carolina, which is when I first learned about you. Is that when you first started the the giant book collection? There's a book that isn't published anymore that I was the first one I wrote back when I was teaching private lessons in D.C. And it was to help kids with rhythm um, because that was like a thing, a problem. And and um, Yeah, good thing all kids have figured that out. Yeah, that's, it's, that's, that's not that anymore. anymore. We've, we've sorted that out. So, yeah. so I just kind of like, you know, bound it myself and made versions for treble clef and bass clef and would start selling it to some of my colleagues who were teaching private lessons. I still, I don't have the files anymore, but I have the books. And at some point I'll probably go back and dredge it up but more recently the the other books the first two were with ensemble publications and that was you know i i like thinking of better ways to explain stuff um and i like being creative and i like writing melodies and so that all kind of combined in a way that was i enjoyed doing it and it was useful to me especially because when you're in an academic position they want you to you know publish stuff and so i figured well i'll try writing some books and see what happens before we get too deep into the books, uh, how long were you at South Carolina before before you um, moved on out west? Well, I was at South Carolina for about 17 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew it was a hot minute. Um, I, I had a feeling I might be there for a little bit longer, but, uh, you know, <laughs> as, as things turned out, I, I ended up going westward. <laughs> westward. <laughs> was it on your radar to be moving to another college at that point or what did this just kind of fall in your lap or how did how did that all come to be uh, it wasn't on my radar for a while but you know when when you're whenever you change jobs you're you're something you're moving to and you there's possibly something that you're moving from and i don't want to go into any more detail than that but there were some in this case there were both twos and froms have you have you considered running for for office <laughs> that was a beautiful answer <laughs> that was very well put uh no no I, I don't think I could lie that that smoothly. <laughs> I mean, but it's that that's the thing because I mean you know as students it, you see it every day. It's like especially right after you graduate, it's hyper focus on just getting the job right, and then as we know, just getting the job doesn't guarantee that all your dreams have come through true and you're fulfilled in every way and you're doing what you want to do and the colleagues you work with, it's a good environment for you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's different for everybody. Sure. So, so I mean, it's not a bad thing to explore and to, to just cause you're moving from one place to another doesn't, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you're just trying to find a place that works for you. And I'm sure there's so many, as you get older, right. There's so many factors, right. With your family and yep. quality of life. Yep. I mean, what, what are you, what are you looking for now? Like what, what gets you excited now as a teacher? Nothing. I hate it all. I'm burnt out. <laughs> <laughs> this year doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, 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 you mean in general. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I mean, when I get down, 
a lesson lifts me up, you know, and that keeps me going back. A good lesson. And, and you know, I, I like my students. Um, I hope they like me. But there's just so many moments in a lesson where, you know, that, that moment that they something clicks or they have that, that epiphany or they just suddenly have a little personal breakthrough. And that just lifts me up. And so I can be having a really not good day. And then I get into a lesson and I focus on doing what I do. And they don't always score. You know, they aren't all great. But there'll be that moment. And like, ah, oh, yeah, that's why I keep doing this is because it's exciting, you know, when they have that personal growth moment. So I guess that's what keeps me going. It makes me think about, and we don't have to fully jump into this topic yet because we definitely have plenty to talk about. But something, a theme I've seen pop up on the the, the trombone pedagogy group uh. um, <laughs> a bit is, you know, some people talking about what's the importance of performance education, music performance education, if there's not a certain amount of jobs in proportion to the amount of people majoring in it. And you've had some really wonderful answers on it. Well, th- that's a question that haunts me a lot. And I get, I can get really, if I get down, that's one of the things that causes me to get down is like, what am I doing? I'm preparing these people for jobs that don't exist. I mean, you know, and then you see someone, I won't say who, but certain people saying, yes, it's just a, a self-perpetuating business model where we're going to keep on selling kids a bill of goods and then collect their money and send them out in the world. I think one of the ways that I'm able to make my peace with myself, um, there's several, but one of them is that I've I've seen performance majors who did not go on in performance, at least not full time, but that performance degree was a way to get to where they wanted to be. So one is a concert hall manager at a major university. One is a director of educational outreach with a symphony orchestra. One was doing uh, summer music camps for disadvantaged kids and, you know, saw that and decided, you know, I want to become a lawyer to help disadvantaged kids. And so it was a stepping stone. And you can't think of it like a technical school, like you will train to be a welder and you will weld. I mean, in this case, it's like you're the self-discipline it takes to get to a certain level as a musical performer and to get that bachelor's degree is opens up possibilities that maybe you had not previously considered. That's one way I make my peace with it. The other way is I, I do talk to my students about, I tell a story about a certain trumpet player in a certain city. I won't say who in a podcast, but this individual is the first call sub with the orchestra, plays principal with the opera orchestra, at least when there was one, teaches adjunct at a college in town, has lots of students, is always, always has the best gigs, and also works half days as a bank teller. So I ask these kids, okay, is that person a success or a failure in music? And I say, look, you know, those who have the real salaried gig, that's the tip of the iceberg. But there's a lot of musicians who cobble together lots of, you know, per service work and students, and they're actually, you know, they live their lives and they're quite happy. Um, and they're protected to a certain extent that their orchestra, their one sole source of employment, won't go out of business like the Savannah Symphony in Georgia. And so actually having those, those 15 or 20 1099s is a way of a sort of a form of job protection. So I say, look, if you're going to be a performance major, you have to set yourself up in a situation where you can do some teaching and pick up some gigs and be stable and still have enough time and energy to practice so that you can gear up and focus in on those auditions when they come around. I think the scariest time is, you know, for a lot of people, about the time they finish their master's. So let's say they're 25, 24, something like that. And then there's that that void in life for like, okay, now I don't have the structure of school anymore. 
what am I going to do? I still want to win that audition, but I haven't won it yet. And so there's like a window of what, 10 years, 15 years where they're going to take their crack at auditions and maybe they're getting to the final six, you know? And I think about every time somebody wins the job and we have the anointed one, you think about the other four or five who probably could have done a very good job there, but they're heading home. And they're, they're still, they're going, returning to their lives, even though they almost tasted, you know, that, 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 that desired, that sought after victory. And, and, you know, how do they keep their spirits going? I talked to a guy who was on, uh, did a lot of shows on Broadway, was never a lead or anything like that. And at one point, my daughter was all about, I'm going to be on Broadway, it's going to be great. This is middle school, you know. And I talked to this guy, I said, so how do you make it on, on Broadway? What do, what do you do? And he said, you know, I think the main thing you need is to accept repeated and constant rejection and, and keep going and not stop. And that's, you know, you've heard the joke about, like, I, you know, I, had to, I had to lose 30 auditions before I won one. Not That doesn't happen with everybody, but I think there's something about that, keeping your spirit going. So in, in going back to your original question, like, you know, how do I make my peace with the performance majors? It, I mean, at the end of the day, it is a bachelor's degree. To a, non-music, uh, to a non-musician, if you say I'm a music performance major, you might as well say I'm a fourth degree wizard. Because a non-musician has like no idea what that means. And I saw that. I had a student who was a trombone performance major and an economics major. And he got a summer internship and he was walking, you know, talking at some, you know, get together with a, a, a woman who was very high up in the Federal Reserve Bank. And she somehow saw that he also did trombone. And all these, you know, young people were sucking up to her, trying to big favors. And she latched onto him and said, well, my son plays trombone. I love music. And they talked for like half an hour and totally connected out completely outside of music. But, you know, that was sort of his hook. And he got a very nice internship and, and kind of, you know, went on the path that I think he was intending to go on all along. So to someone who's not a musician, if you say I'm a trained musician, that's pretty impressive to them because they don't understand it. Yeah, I see more and more employers actually get a little excited about that. I mean, like you said, some it seems like voodoo to some people, but there's a lot of employers that if they do know anything about music and know the dedication it takes, the the amount of self-learning involved and working with groups oh yeah and um sensitivity to others and the complex thinking and levels of empathy like yeah they 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 crave there there's some employers i see that just want to hire musicians all the time when they can even when i was an undergraduate back in a certain decade i won't mention the 1980s (laughs) um i lived in hartford which had a lot of insurance companies and at that point computer programming was like very new and they there weren't there wasn't a wealth of computer programming types applying for jobs. And there was an unknown thing at the Hart School of Music that you could walk into any insurance company and say, I'm a music major at Hart, and they would hire you on the spot and train you themselves because they'd had such success with the patience and the complex thinking. That- Thanks, Charles Ives. <laughs> yep. yeah. No kidding. Yeah, no kidding, right? I think that it would be interesting to dig into your books, how, I mean, you kind of touched upon why, but when, when did it become kind of a focus on specifically lip slurs? Why did that, why was it not articulation? Why was it not, well, you did rhythm, so I won't mention that, but why specifically lip slurs? Any book probably starts out with the question, why hasn't anybody done this yet? 
And and I like uh, trombone players. All trombone players love doing lip slurs. And, you know, there just wasn't... There was the violin book that some people mentioned. But there just didn't seem to be a lot of, like, lip slurs books out there. Yeah, people had the same... You know, you look at people's routines and basically you see all the same lip slurs over and over and over and over again. And so I thought, man, you know, you could do something a little better. Like, you have some antecedent consequent phrasing in it. A chance to breathe, a little variety with slide positions, and I, I've asked myself that question: It's like, why has no one done this yet? And then I went to, well, you know, shoot, I guess I'll do it. And I didn't know if it was going to succeed or fail, but I was just like, you know, what the heck? I'll just I'll write something, and and people like it or they don't. I will say that you know this, the the over the time I was writing that book, I was playing them all, and and rejecting a bunch too, you know, that didn't make it into the final cut. But boy, I, I, my jobs have never felt better in my whole life. I, mean, I, <laughs> I was doing lip service for like six hours a day. Wow. And, and it's like, wow, I, I should like wear a cape and have an S on my chest. This is amazing. <laughs> the first book, I mean, it obviously, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly when you published it, but how quickly was it a success? Because now it seems like it's a part of the standard, standard repertoire for education for, for trombone players. Go, what was the first part of that question again? Sorry, my when phone. when it was when it was pu- someone someone was, someone was calling to order another lip slur. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a secretary that handles all that. So. <laughs> no, when, I don't know when it was published, but how quickly did it become a, a, a success? Uh, well, the first, I guess, officially published one was the Clef Studies book, and it was kind of a slow burn. You know, uh, I mostly partly I was thinking I need something for my tenure file. You know, and it, it caught on, and it just kind of. You know, it's now putting along at a, a pretty decent pace, but nothing amazing. But, you know, I get the royalty statements each year from from ensemble publications, and it, it's about the same every year for years now. So it never caught on like wildfire. And then Lipsers caught on significantly more. And I don't recall how, if it caught on quickly or slowly. I mean, it, it really helped that I think I sent Joe Alessi a free copy, and he wrote some nice words about it. And that has a way of perking up people's attention. And I, the reason I chose Ensemble Publications very specifically was I knew they were connected to Hickey's. I knew that Hickey's had the biggest booth at all the shows. And I knew that you know Chuck DiPaolo, who's great, would always make sure that his, his products were visible. So I thought, well, what's the best way to be visible at shows? Well, if I can get in with Ensemble Publications, then that's, that's the way to go. So with a combination of you believing in your work, you doing really good work, mm-hmm. it's not only that. It was being smart about finding the best way to get in front of the most eyes oh, yeah. as possible. Absolutely. I mean, I, I see a lot of guys will show me a book that's a new book they're releasing. I think that's great. And they ask me for advice. And I say, especially now, the hardest thing is how are you going to get anybody to notice? That is so difficult, you know, and I've seen a lot of good ideas. And then I don't know if the book sells or not, but it's, there's just the, the marketplace of ideas is fortunately more crowded. Not fortunate if you're trying to get a book out there. Did Did you ever consider like self-publishing or, oh yeah, you know, for, for someone like just starting, I mean, what's the most cost efficient way of going about it? Cause you, like you're saying, you have to balance like, right. If I do it myself, obviously you're going to save the most money, but no, no one might see. So it. The, the first two books, Clef Studies and Lip Stars are published for ensemble and I get a standard rate of 10 per, 10% per book sold, which is, I started to think, well, that's not great. So every other book since then has been self-published. So that's in answer to your question. I just self-published now. Then what was the second part of your question? Well, that kind of relates to it. I mean, do you think you could have self-published if you you hadn't had the that company 
market it first? No. Uh, well, I mean, I could have. I don't think it would have caught. I think you need, it's like trying to start a little fire at a campsite. You know, the, maybe the, the published book is like your kindling wood. Um, and these days, um, ensemble still quite good, but he's you know selective in what he takes. It seems like Cherry Classics is probably the most active in, in putting stuff out there because I'm a reviewer for the I, ITA and, you know, Another thing from Cherry Classics, another thing from Cherry Classics, another thing from Cherry Classics. I mean, and then Cimarron is, is a, a reasonably good one to try and get started. So I'd say, you know, maybe align yourself with a publisher for that first time to get people interested. Yeah. So I'm like holding back my fandom as much as I can right now. But, you know, I, I, I've lived out of the Lipsler Melodies book. I can't even tell you how many times. And what I like about your books in general are they're really good books when you have no idea what you want to practice, <laughs> you can pick up one of your books and be like, I'm going to get something productive done. Right. Um, and I can just attack like fundamental. If I don't have any, if I don't have a lesson to prepare for or an audition coming up or a concert coming up this year, it, w- it it's a perfect way to do it. And so when you made this Lipsler melody book after the Lipsler book, did you see what what I what I like about it so much is it's making something that it's very easy to be very technical, but you're putting you're making it through a musical lens. So you're you're accessing that other side of your brain while you're doing technical exercises, which is so you see so many people get bogged down in the in the wrong side, right? When we're trying to connect these things that are helping to make us better work when we're actually performing. Well, I, I love writing melodies. You know, I mean, that's where it starts is, is, I mean, I get as much joy. I'm like a very, very slow motion jazz improviser um, that like, <laughs> do not ask me to improvise jazz. You will not have a pleasant experience, but my mind is working the same way really slowly. Like I'm creating melodies and, and I'm, I'm sometimes I think I'm just happiest when I'm creating melodies. And so in this case, it was just melodies that had lipsers, you know, and, and that's like kind of a, a little puzzle. Okay, how can I make a halfway decent melody that's all natural slurs without getting really weird on a ton of alternate positions? Because, you know, what's that going to do for anybody? And I just loved writing that book. I, had, I think I had more fun writing that book than anyone I've written. I wrote it faster than just about anything I've ever written, too. And it came to life because, you know, there's some Lipsler melodies at the end of the original Lipsler's book. And over the years, guys would say, hey, those Lipsler melodies, you should write some more of those. And suddenly I thought, well, yeah. I should write some more of those. And so, man, I knocked that thing out. Like, I think it was in one summer. It's just like, it's, and my brain, when it comes to writing a melody, uh, and this is true with any, I guess, any creativity is at first, it's like a car's engine won't start. You're like, oh, I don't know. Let's start with major third. Okay. That's okay. What's next? And then the brain goes, oh, so we're going to do this now. And then it's just like opens up these floodgates and, and I like I'm writing down almost down as fast as I can. Mm. And then I'm just like going about like I'm driving my car and the brain's like, well, I've got another melody for you. Here's another one. How about this? What about this? And I'm like, stop, I'm driving right now, you know? So once the car's engine is running, it, it runs pretty fast. But then when I stop, it goes back into hibernation mode and doesn't want to start again. You're getting into like a flow state. Yep. Oh, I love that flow state. That's a good book. The book flow. I've read that. Yeah. I read that during Traviata. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good reading opera. <laughs> it's a great reading opera. Not as, like, not as good as Butterfly. Butterfly is the best reading opera. Okay. It's like 400 measures of build up, build up, build up, build up. And then you just chord. And then another like 20 minutes <laughs> yeah. off. That's about right. 
So I have just a bunch of questions I would love to just try to get in, if that's cool with you, Nick. All right. Just to touch on it or, you know, spend a longer time. What did you envision Trombone Pedagogy being, the the fabled Facebook group, if anyone's not aware, versus what it is today? It started out with 13 people and it was talking about trombone warmups. And that was the name of the group. And then it started to grow um, and became trombone pedagogy. And then, you know, I, I just, I think Facebook is just such a useless thing. And, but at least when I go on Facebook, if it's trombone players geeking out about, you know, teaching stuff, well, that's, that's okay. That's kind of enjoyable to talk about. But like any group that grows and starts to go really fast, it's inevitable that it's like a lot of other forums. Like when someone asks a question, and I'm looking at all the answers. There's a lot of the answers. Maybe I shouldn't say this in a podcast, but a lot of answers I just ignore because, you know, I mean, I'm Bobby and I'm an eighth grader and this is how you're supposed to breathe. I mean, it's like, yep. okay, thanks, Bobby. So, and then we had some really, some nasty dust-ups. There was a lawsuit, um, which, you know, if you know about it, you know about it. And if you don't, I can't speak about it. But there was a lawsuit connected to that group. I was worried for a few days I was going to be sued um, because I was the founder of the forum. But it was someone, what some people said on the forum that got them sued in a defamation case. Whoa. And then there was, uh, you know, I think there was a, a, an explosion at one point uh, over, you know, I had to ask a moderator to step down, um, which I hated doing because I think she's wonderful. But it just, I think there was a line being crossed. And then I think we were touched by, to a certain extent, by the Black Lives Matter movement. And the fact that at that point, our moderators were three white dudes. And I thought, this is not good. And I can now see why this is really bad. And so I started working to, okay, we need a bigger moderating group and we need, um, we need diversity, cultural diversity, gender diversity, you know, ethnic diversity. Um, and so, and it also had become such a full-time job with these huge fights brewing that like, if I left Facebook for three hours, I'd come back and this giant fight had broken out. And people were calling each other Hitler and so on. I was like, whoa, I don't want to just, what happened? This whole thing blew up. And people were like, why isn't the moderator stepping in? It's like, because the moderator has a life. And I'm Mm -hmm. not being paid to do this. So I got a panel of nine other people. I thought it was a really good panel. And then I just stepped down. I said, okay, I'm done. I'll still participate in the forum, but I'm not going to be a moderator or admin or anything. And I'm just, my stress levels in life went down a lot. Because it got too big. And, and, but there's still good stuff there. And there's also a trombone professors group on Facebook. And if I go onto Facebook, like 90% of my time is in one of those two forums. And there's some very, very good conversations that do take place. And pedagogy has been very good lately, too. I haven't seen people mm-hmm. picking fights too much. Yeah. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> but there, you, you have to, especially with a lo- any large forum... You have to dig through the junk, but there are nuggets of gold in there if you're willing to look. And so, you know, you can look at, it's like what we said about having the job. What are you going to focus on? The stuff that's not good or the stuff that's good. There's good stuff in there. You know, absolutely. Randy Campora will come in and make some great comments. Yeah, he's you know? great. And so I'm going to go past Bobby, who's in eighth grade, and look for Randy. And then I mean, that's where I'm going to focus. Well, it's not just eighth graders, unfortunately. It's well, like, no, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, if, if obviously it's big and the world is big and yeah, we all play the trombone, but there's so many different people that, that do. And I'm still a believer that there can be positive discourse yeah. 
in this world, if it can be done in a respectful way, it can be done in a fact-driven way and not trying to just like look like you won the conversation. Right. And as much as that can be encouraged, you know, just the other, we can do some great things. Yeah, just the other day, someone said something and I said, I disagree and this is why I disagree. And then they came back, you know, saying blah, 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 blah. And I thought, you know, what they said was thoughtful, but I was like, I'm disengaging. I have no need to. I expressed an opinion. You know, you're not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change yours. There's no point in continuous. So I think learning to disengage early and not having any of yourself invested in a disagreement is a really important life skill now. Yeah. I, a couple, what was it? A couple summers ago, though, someone posted on the Contrabase Tremone Lovers and Appreciation Forum. That's a thing? Yeah. yeah. And oh, someone said, gosh. someone asked about slide and valve combinations for the entry of the gods on Contrabase Tremone. And I chimed in saying, oh, it depends on the tuning system, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, on I, I, I said on the German system, if you do this, blah, blah. I, I just gave my my thoughts on it. And he said, that's a stupid, someone said, that's the <laughs> stupidest thing I've ever read. Can you imagine Paul Pollard thinking that? And I, I, I was like, well, I, I played it into the back of Paul Pollard's head in the Met. Um, but <laughs> then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to engage in this and I'm yeah. going to step away. You know, yeah. this is not worth it. <laughs> yeah. Disengage, disengage. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's still on the, on the balance is more positive than negative. Absolutely. 100%. It's done a lot of great things. If you could give any advice to a young person that just finished their DMA and they're wanting to do what you do, I've I've had friends write in about that I was talking to you and just, how do you get the interview? How good does my recording need to be? How long should my CV cover letter be? I mean, all these little things that sometimes people aren't really taught. You need to be the key that fits the lock. So like when a job says we want this, this, and this, then make you have to almost like you need to have a one-to-one matchup. They said we need some experience with teaching music theory. Then you better show very prominently in materials that you you've done that. And you know if we want some jazz experience, you need to I mean, you need to be the the person they're looking for. And a lot of people they don't do that. They just like here's my stuff, deal with it. Now I will say I've had some applications where. It, it was kind of a laundry list, and I did exactly what I told people not to do. I just applied, and it turns out that, you know, these job descriptions written by committee, sometimes there are things on there that aren't that important. But as much as possible as a DMA person, you, well, first of all, as a DMA person, by the time you're done with your DMA, it's really very late in the process. You should be starting much earlier. You should be looking at job announcements. I've actually been reaching out to people who've been hired in the last five years for academic jobs, and people are starting to send me their CVs. One guy was kind enough to send me his CV and the letter he got from the school and his, uh, his job interview itinerary. And I'm starting to try and build up a folder so that these students can not just see any CV, but I want to see a CV that that person got hired. Mm and got hired recently so they can see, okay, this worked for this person, this worked for this person. So that's very important. If you have an application that's nothing but student, it's going to be very hard to get on a short list. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. It, you know, when you see bachelor's, master's, doctorate, I want a job. It's like, yeah, man, that doesn't, that just doesn't. I mean, you got to have some, something in the real world because we get lots of people that went straight through as students and maybe they're great, but you need to have some. And I've seen people who do it like they get a grant application uh, from a state and they, they set up an arts program. It's like, okay, so you did something. It was concurrent with your student studies, but it was a thing you did beyond what was on the, all the syllabi. And so that can, that'll get a committee to, to perk up and, and take notice. Much more important these days is diversity and equity. 
And more and more committees are wanting diverse candidates and they're wanting diversity statements. So you really got to think about what meaningful work you're doing. And so don't do it just to put it on the resume. Do it to make the world a better place. So maybe you're going to teach some lessons ad hoc. I mean, a pro bono in a school that's, you know, you know, is, is, is a diverse school. And, but you can say you're helping to build a program like that. And that can be a good way into, because I always see a catch-22. I see the same thing with like actors in New York City, for example, or anywhere trying to get their SAG card. Like you can't get your SAG card until you've been acting and you can't act in a SAG production until you have your SAG card. So it's like you see so many college uh, applications that say collegiate yep. teaching experience required. Right. right. And so many students are like, how am I supposed to get that? Yep. It's, it's a curse. And uh, there's not an easy button to push. I think be very aware of any opportunity that's out there. If I were a young DMA person, I'd probably be keeping a spreadsheet of all the colleges and who's teaching trombone at the colleges and how long they've been there. That's a little morbid. But, you know, you want to... And I know that when I started to get serious about college app applications, I was just memorizing names of teachers at schools and what they were doing so that I could just say, this school, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so is teaching there, so-and-so is teaching there. Just I just wanted to be aware of what's going on out there. You know, I think that this can this can transfer over into performance as well. Like knowing who's out there, knowing what jobs might be open in the next five years, these sort of things. I mean, and it's not just about putting that spreadsheet together. It's about taking the initiative and and instilling the drive in yourself. I think I think it's more than just having having a spreadsheet in front of you. I th- yeah, I th- yeah. Well, especially on bass trombone this next year. Yeah, it's gonna be the, a big the, one. the floodgates are gonna conceivably might open. Um, oh, they are. They're going to yeah. happen. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's going to be a real interesting time. So yeah, on the bass trumpet and merry-go-round, that brass ring is coming around. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you better be riding your horse real well. Yeah. Okay. I got some rapid fire questions. Yeah. Sorry. I don't talk short. Oh, no. Th- those were more lengthy ones. These are maybe a little quicker, but they don't have to be. Advice to your 18-year-old self. Not everybody else is 10 feet tall. You don't have to play so loud. Uh, <laughs> um, spend a, a lot more time listening to music put that into your daily schedule force yourself to get in there and listen to music like crazy have you ever felt pressured to play an edwards trombone <laughs> i almost bought one i was on shires for 25 years and switched last march in the, the very end of the before times i was at atw you know, I, I was there and I played an Edwards from Baltimore Brass and I played a Greenhoe from Baltimore Brass. And I just did some side-by-side listening comparisons with people and also what I felt. And the Greenhoe was edging it out. I was like, that's it. I'm buying a Greenhoe. I almost bought an Edwards. And people ask me that all the time. Like, dude, why aren't you playing an Edwards? I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> it was a, it was a easy, easy. Yeah. Low, yeah. Low-hanging fruit, Sebastian. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, more low-hanging fruit. You can only take one of your etude books onto a desert island. Which one is it? Wow. This is assuming I've forgotten all the other ones. Um, <laughs> it's like my favorite child. Um, yeah, that's tough. See, I'm always most in love with the book that I most wrote most recently. And the mo- most recent book is this book, 60 Vignettes, which after this podcast, I'm going to offer you guys a free PDF version of it. So. Oh, oh, really? Fantastic. I was, I was just thinking when you said that, I was like, oh, that's one I don't have. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a new one. It's only a yeah. few months old. Yeah. So maybe that's it. What's it? What's it about? Um, what's it? It's, it's little, little half page tunes. Um, each one appears in three keys 
And it's just some of them are like obvious ripoffs of those Arbin tonguing exercises that everybody loves. And some of them are just like, let's get legato and sound going. And then I design them so that you can play them in tenor clef. So the A example goes up to a high C in tenor clef. The B example goes up to high D. And then the C example is low range. And bass trombone has a different key sequence. And then they get harder. And it's just, I think we trombonists love, we're melody starved. You know, right. When you see the horns and the oboes and the, you know, they get melodies all the time. Poor little us. How often do we get the tune? So I think we really crave melodies and I just want to write a little more set of like simple little character pieces. And think about it just developmentally, uh, the average kid starting when they're like 10 or 11 in band, you're going to be playing, you know, fifths and whole notes and half notes for the first three years while the trumpet players and clarinets and flutes are learning how to phrase. Yes. Yeah. And we never move on. <laughs> Nick's still stuck. Hold yeah. on, run. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Last question from me. What are you? Because uh, we were talking about this topic, so I wrote down this question while we were talking. What are you most grateful for now? Health, family's health, a semblance of job security. I mean, those are dumb things, but I think at the end of the day, I'm breathing. I'm not sick, and uh, I, I have a secure place to live. You know. I've never had food insecurity. I've never wondered where my meal is going to come from. And I think that stuff is can become invisible to you. And and so I have to make it visible and realize I'm glad for these things. You know, be glad for all these little things that we don't think of because they're not little. They're very big. Nick, you can relate to that with the health, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So a question I like to ask is, especially because you're a professor, what's something that students need to be doing more of singing singing that's the first time we've had that one singing musically right singing musically sure. and wait what's the difference <laughs> don't make me demonstrate man <laughs> <laughs> i love that that's great yeah it's amazing in lessons they're struggling with something i say just sing it and then they go ah, da, da, da. and i was like no 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 sing it like you mean it make it beautiful and they sing it and then they pick up on the trombone and it's like it's, I think we have inside our brains a singing brain, and it goes to sleep. And we start to perceive music as, put the slide here, do this, do this. And, and, and the singing brain has gone to sleep. And when the singing brain wakes up, and you're really, like Arnold Jacobs says, singing it in your mind, then it's amazing how the trombone just reflects that. Sure. That's great. Oh, that's a great answer. Yeah. Man, this, this has been a fantastic talk. I mean, it's been really nice to finally talk to you and, and pick your brain a little bit and We've covered so many interesting topics. I can't wait to to share this with everybody. Thanks. And I can say uh, with with confidence that when Sebastian says he's a fan, uh, you should see his copy of your 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 Lipsler, your first Lipsler book. Uh, it's pretty dog eared because <laughs> he carries it everywhere. Well, <laughs> I, I I actually took a photo of it and tagged you in it once. I think I remember that. It's like the the cover fell off, and it was like all. And you're like, yeah, I need to start covering these in, in strap or Kevlar or something. Yeah. Or go to yeah. get buy a new one, take it to FedEx and get it coil bound. Oh, four bucks, five bucks maybe. There you go. There you go. Fresh copy. There was someone who dressed up. Uh, I don't remember who she was, but she dressed up as at the Lipsters book for Halloween one year. <laughs> that, that that's a new level of dorkdom right there. I love it. <laughs> and I was like, is that a scary costume or? <laughs> I hope you're going to like a trombone studio party because everywhere else, no one's yeah, having no idea. What you're doing. <laughs> in college, one time I went as a New York Times crossword puzzle. I had really? the, the, the questions on on the, I think the questions were on the front and then the answers were on the back, and I had a pen 
and all night long, people were like, I can't remember. Maybe they had the questions were on the back, and they were like staring at my back, which is really fun for making you paranoid. You're like, what? Oh, yeah, you're looking yeah. at the questions, and then they'd, they'd write the answers down. Well, the real question is, who is the editor of the crossword? I don't know how to answer that in any way that's I mean, the only, the only answer is Will Shorts. Oh, of course, obviously, the puzzle master. Yeah. yeah. Did you see that? I read once that I was talking to Pete Sullivan once about this. The person, if and I could be wrong, we'll, we'll double check, but the person that invented the crossword puzzle was actually a violinist in the Pittsburgh Symphony. No way. And Pete Sullivan was like literally obsessed. That's like all he does when he's resting at, at, at work. And I was like, did you know someone in this orchestra invented it? And it was just... Psh. Wow, that is very cool. Huh. So musicians can do lots of sure. things. Eh. And if that's wrong, I'll just delete everything I just said. But I'm pretty sure that's right. Brad, thanks yeah, so thank much for so hanging much. out with us. Yeah. Been really, really cool talking to you and uh, picking your brain. And we hope to see you in person and maybe at one of these festivals, if not too many people are crowded around you buying your books. Well, the challenge will be to go into the instrument room, but we can only meet and chat if somebody's playing Bolero. Well, it, or Ride. Bolero or Ride. Those as loud as you can. Too, yeah. yeah. I was so. going to say Hungarian March and Ride because those go bass and tenor. So or bass trombone, loud pedal tones. Um, we got It's a, you know how hard that is to find at a trombone convention. So <laughs> I'm always fascinated by the people that just want to like. I need to test my lip trills immediately, <laughs> as loud as possible. Yeah, it's like that's like the top of your priority <laughs> list. Like, how often do you need to? That's do how that? you pick a trombone, you know. Sweet trombone, but does it trill? <laughs> no stairway to heaven. A little tight. Yeah, exactly. The, the lick. I'm very happy we interviewed Brad. Uh, I met him a number of years ago, and he was a really great guy, really easy to talk to, but he even exceeded my expectations, gotta say. And my expectations were very high. Yeah, I didn't really know what to think. I came with an open mind. Obviously, I have a great respect for the amount of work he's put out. And, you know, I've seen him a lot on the Trombone Pedagogy page. And he, he just seems really on top of everything. Yeah, the, the slur master himself. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure he would love that name. There's probably a, a word in German that it's just one word. And it means that, like the perfectionist of the lip slur. Yeah. And it's like 20 syllables. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, our, can, our ger, ger, can our German audience help us out with yeah. that? Is there is there a word for that? <laughs> Meister Schlagen. <laughs> you he probably just like cussed or something. No, I said master hitter <laughs> or master hitting. <laughs> Germany is like our our second biggest listener base, I believe. Because you so got a German right here. Germans. You got German. Yeah, right I'm here. sure they're they're tuning in just to hear your your German perspective on everything. Schwarz, Schwarz. I could introduce you that way. You could, yeah. Hey, my family's from Baden-Baden. Well, going way back. Oh. Still got some distant relatives there. So, Brad Edwards. I feel like we all are going to get a little bit smarter from hearing him talk. Lots of little little blips and blurbs of, of wisdom. And he, it's just, you can tell he's thought a lot about teaching, how to be better at teaching. Obviously, playing, you know, with his books that he has out. Yeah, he's just, he's a very thoughtful person. Very, very fun to talk to as well. Yeah, I really enjoyed just seeing his philosophy on enjoying the craft of what he does and, you know, approaching every student differently because every student is different. And just he was just right on top of every every question we had. He's just he's a great compliment to the trombone community. We're, we're lucky to have him. And he's, you know, he's advancing 
however you feel about his books, maybe you don't care for them. Maybe you live out of them. He's doing a lot to further along etude books and and method books of trombone players. Because, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we've been playing out of for like 100 years, which isn't always a bad thing, but it's always good to like keep the art form moving forward. Yeah, I have a couple thoughts about that, actually. Number one, like if you haven't done this already, you should really read his books, like read what he writes and suggests on how to work out of them. I think it's very good advice on like in all, all YouTube books should have a little bit of that involved. Like here's what I had in mind as the composer of these books. Here's how I think you should work on them. And I think he really touches upon a lot of very important things in those little blurbs he has describing the book. Also, the other thing is I thought about this before we were going to interview him. He has very quickly, his books have become staples in our trombone community as etude books in basically every studio in the country. I mean, that's hard to do. That's really hard to kind of break in and be like in the same sentence as Blasevich or Bordoni or, you know, Tyrell or whatever you, whatever you consider well, to you, be the standards. You just described my, my dream dinner guest list. <laughs> Is Slama there too? I don't. I haven't spent much time with Slama. Yeah, I I just have uh, fond memories of Slama, so for me it's important. Speaking of the trombone pedagogy page, and, and I really appreciated his his thoughtful comments on it. There is one thing I, I did want to address that you know we always post quote photos basically to to advertise the podcast. That's one of the places we post little pictures of our guests with a quote from the podcast, usually some sort of inspirational quote or a nugget of wisdom. And so our last one was from Randy Hawes. And basically, we posted a quote, he said, go out and contact people who are doing what you want to do for a living and get lessons. Do it now. There's no reason to be shy about it. Go see how far you have to go to get where you want to be. And it got tremendous response and, and overwhelmingly positive and really, I think the crux of the quote may have been slightly misinterpreted by some people. There's a few people that commented things like this kind of quote makes it feel pressured to get lessons if, if say, you don't have enough money to do it. Advice like that makes them feel like you have to be born rich to be successful in this field. And if you listen to the, to the podcast, which if you haven't listened to, please do. The whole point was him encouraging people that felt shy to do it, that there's no better time than the present to go out and discover what you're kind of looking for. And if you're curious about what it takes to be successful in this field, there's nothing better than studying with people that are doing what you want to do. I think that's all he's saying. I don't think he's trying to say like, go broke doing this or you have no chance, you know? Yeah. I mean, the truth of the matter is lessons are so important to what we want to achieve on the trombone or, you know, any instrument really. And this even transcends music. I think it's, it's a bigger picture thing, but within our field, let's stick with trombone. We have to go take lessons. We have to hear what, like Sebastian said, what the people out there doing this expect and what they are doing on the trombone and what they're tricks of the trade are, so to speak, like, like little tricks on how to improve this excerpt or this etude or this solo or whatever. And we have to be able to figure out how to do that. And, you know, we're, no one's saying, okay, you got to go take lessons with absolutely everybody. The other thing to, to bring into consideration is it doesn't always have to be money 
to buy lessons. For for example, I know of a prominent trombone teacher. I, I won't I won't say his name because I don't know if he wants to advertise this. He would work out with students sometimes who just didn't have any money. Like, all right, um, come over and babysit for for uh, one, one or two nights or something like that. Or I have a shed that needs painting. If you help me paint it, I'll give you I'll give you six lessons or something like that. You know, exchange of services really is what what that comes down to. And I think also on top of that, like myself, I, I'll speak for myself here. I've had people come come up and say, "I really want to take a lesson with you, but I can't afford anything right now." I've tried to work out, okay, what about a payment plan? You know, what if you give what if you gave me half now, half later or something like that. Or sometimes I've, I have worked out small tasks I need needed done. I needed a bunch of copies of a bunch of music at one point, And I had a student make copies for me because I just didn't have any time. I said, if you make these copies for me, I'll give you a lesson. So, you know, we worked it out. I've worked it out with multiple students this way. So the, the important thing to drive home is you got to get out there. You got to meet people because the, at the end of the day, it's about networking as well. Well, yeah, I, that made me think like, when I applied to the summer trombone workshop, Jaime Avitzer let me babysit his kids because I couldn't afford the application fee. Mm. <laughs> and that was one of the most important things I ever did. Yeah, I mean, I think saying like needing to be rich is, is you know, a little bit over the top, especially some of these people posting. And it was it was just a, couple, a handful of people. And I'm not going to like call them out or anything. But, you know, they're going to big schools that probably cost a lot more money than having a single lesson, which we were supporting. If you look at it, I mean, there's not really any line of work anywhere where, sure, having a certain amount of money is going to be an advantage. And until every single person has the same amount of money, that's going to be the case in some way. But that being said, if the only prerequisite to being successful at the trombone was being rich, then every single person that was successful would be only the richest people. And I definitely know that's not the case. So, so to me, the, the underlying factor, the most important variable in your success is your ass in the practice room, your personal agency to work your butt off. And there's more free resources today than ever before on YouTube and the amount of recordings out there and pedagogical resources. Through the Trombone Retreat alone, we gave a free week-long seminar last year online. We do this podcast for free, which I I hope people are finding educational. It, it's it's out there. And I would just ask these people, what what is your solution? Because, I mean, you can't expect people to give away their time for free away from their families. This is their source of income to support their lives and that they spent money on. And... At the end of the day, this is just encouraging getting more information. Uh, Some of the comments went on to say it's, you know, irresponsible to not level with students about job opportunities. And once a student... That's not very fair, I don't think. Yeah. Like once a student knows the reality of the situation, then they can make a decision how far you have to go to get what you want. That's exactly what this is advocating. That's how you learn about how far you need to go is by seeing the level that's required. And yeah, sure. Things cost money, so if you can't afford it, we're not we're not saying we're not saying go spend your life savings on lessons with Joe Alessi. We're just saying every now and then it's gonna help. You don't have to do it because the most important thing is is you, but don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, and, and I, you know, if we really boil down 
the idea here. And let me back up a little bit, actually. I said that's not really fair, assuming that Randy or any of us aren't talking to our students about the reality. First of all, we someone brought that up in the comments as well, that, well, do you know that Randy's not doing this? He is doing this. I think it, as a teacher, it's our responsibility to do this. I am very clear with my students about the battles and the, you know how difficult it is to break into the scene. I'm very aware I had to do it myself. And I also try to offer as many resources to do that. Say, hey, call this person, call this person, meet them, take them out for a coffee, even if you can't afford a lesson, to try to get your name out there. This is the biggest thing because it doesn't matter where you went to school, doesn't matter how many degrees you have, people don't know who you are unless you put yourself out there. And you can put yourself out there online in the form of recordings, but you would be better to take that recording and send it to someone and say, hey, I'm and be honest, hey, I'm trying to break into the music scene in whatever city you're in. Here's some of my stuff. I'd love to meet up with you, play some duets sometime, whatever, something like that. That's a jumping off point. And I think you'd be surprised how many people would say, yeah, that's great. Let's, call me back in six months. I'm a little busy right now. Let's get together. Some people might say, look, I just don't have time. If you want a lesson, you can hit me up. But I would say that a lot of people are willing, yeah, give you 30 minutes of their time because they might be looking for subs too on their show or their gig or whatever it may be, or, you know, maybe they have some work to throw around. Who knows? So the number one thing that the, the, that this, inf this quote is that Randy had is trying to get out there is go meet people. And I can't advocate for that enough. I think students to be completely frank, do a lousy job of doing this for themselves. And no, the number one reason is I think they're nervous too. It's hard to put yourself out there. It really is. But you got to do it. It's very important. Yeah. And it's, it comes to a common theme. Like if you think, if you graduate school and, and you think, oh, well, if I'm just really freaking good at the trombone, things are just going to work out. Like people are just going to offer me things and contact me. You know, it, you go in an audition. That'd be good. But otherwise... Like a lot of professions and like we talk about a lot on here, it's it's the personal relationships you have with people. That's the most important thing in addition to your fine playing yeah, and your trustworthiness. And so, yeah, you know, I have full respect for these people that made these comments, but I think it was slightly misinterpreted. And I just think the crux of the argument isn't really that strong when at the end of the day, yes, getting lessons with a professional, it's hard to go go away from. It's probably going to help. Do you need to be rich to have a, a single lesson? I look at it as an investment. Sure, money is money. If you don't have it, you don't have it. And that's respectable. But at the same time, I don't see a solution of just everyone should be giving everyone free lessons because I just don't see that translating to be possible on a mass scale. But there are resources. And the most important thing, again, is not money. The most important thing is you being determined and working consistently and, and following your dreams and being hungry for your goals. And... Another big lesson to take away from this is this can apply to so many things out there. I'll have, I'll talk to students like say, Hey, did you catch that uh, New York Philharmonic performance last week when they were doing Mahler five? No, I couldn't afford it. And I'm like, did you even try? I mean, first of all, like there are ways to get into concerts for free. There are, yeah. I'm telling you, I went to school in New York and I, most of the concerts, I say 90% of the concerts I went to, I didn't pay for there's something called stubbing in, or that's what we called it at the intermission. You ask for people that are leaving because a lot of people leave at intermission for some reason. And you say, hey, can can I get your ticket stub? They know what you're doing. You're going to go take their seat. But if they're going away, most of them are like, oh, 
here. I don't care. Oh, man. You know what my favorite thing was in New York when I was a grad student there was going to... We got free rehearsal tickets for the New York Philharmonic. Yes. Yeah. And there was no better way of starting my day. There would be like no one there. And I get to just like sit wherever I want at like, you know, 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning and just listen to a, a dress rehearsal. And it was the same as the concert. And it just woke me up every day. And it was free. Yeah. You know, and there's like $10 student tickets. I mean... Everything you cannot usually ask your teacher if they play in the orchestra or know someone that can get you a ticket. Like last minute student rushes, they're they're there. Yeah, there's ways if if you're willing, there's a way, and uh, I think that's what this all comes down to is really just kind of don't stop at oh this costs money, I don't have money. Be creative about it. Try to figure out how to get in the door for cheaper or for free. You know, when it comes to concerts or talking about going back, re- reaching out to people, you know, there's a, a lot of, a lot of things that you can do that don't cost any money. Writing an email doesn't cost money. So mm-hmm. it's an investment in you. Yep. You know, at the end of the day. So yeah, I just wanted to touch on that. If any of those people want to reach out to us, I'm happy to talk further about the subject. So I had my first rehearsal with the opera yesterday and I have my second one I'm about to head out to now in about a year. Awesome. And, um, yeah, it, it's cool. I won't go into details about the piece, but I do have a slight bone to pick because it's it's on my mind. Bone to pick. That was like our backup, backup, backup podcast name. (laughs) There's probably already one called that, if I'm not mistaken. But okay, trombonists, I think we can all sympathize with bad mute changes. (laughs) Can we please spread the gospel to every composer we know that there's a certain amount of time needed to change mutes, especially to take a mute out or to switch mutes. The opera I'm playing has six mutes required. Okay, and six mutes. Straight, cup, harmon, bucket, mm-hmm. plunger. Mm-hmm. What else? Is that five? Yeah. Okay, so technically six because there's harmon stem in and harmon stem out, and we were talking about it, and the best way to do it is to have two harmons. Right. One with stem in, one stem out little little hack there so because it takes a while to push push it in and out so yeah six mutes and i'm having to get like a table next to me and i ah it drives me insane it drives me crazy it is it that that going along with other pet peeve that composers could do it only drives me crazy when it's something that could be found out very easily like things that are impossible on the trombone if you would have just had a two-minute conversation with a trombonist, you probably could have figured it out. Another thing I hate is glisses that aren't possible. Right. Yeah. You know, that's not hard to, yeah. to learn. Google image search like a trombone slide chart. You, you know what? It, when I was at school, um, my friend was minoring in composition, and he brought me the book that they were teaching out of at the school. And he said, hey, I want you to look over the trombone chapter and just tell me if He's, he was a bassoonist and he said the bassoon chapter is a mess. It's not, it's not like, it's not good information. It's all incorrect. The trombone chapter. So the trombone has six positions in that the bass trombone has five positions. Okay. And <laughs> that you shouldn't write rapidly between B flat and B natural because of the distance. And I was like, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Like, so I went to the composition department chair and I said, you have to find a new book. This is unacceptable. You know, this is incorrect information. He could not care less that it was wrong. And I was just like, this is why we have things like the mute change problem in 
glitches that don't work. Look, Bartok and Sheriff Orkstra, huge exposed B natural to F gliss, and they built a freaking trombone, a special trombone just for those glisses. It, well, it's in that and in Miraculous Mandarin. <laughs> it's like and compo- composers on, aren't going to learn unless we we communicate these things. I used to sub a lot with American Composers or- Orchestra, which is it's a smaller orchestra here in New York that's completely dedicated to new music being written now. And there's a there's a panel that's it's all composers that are prominent in the field, and they work with up and coming composers and pick their music to be read by the American Composers Orchestra. So the way that their season works is there's not there's only one or two concerts a year, but there's there would be like ten sessions throughout the year on top of that. And those sessions you would read through pieces and then record them. And then you'd have a, a Q and a session with the composer where you could say, Hey, uh, in bar six, you wrote this glisten and it's not possible. What an awesome idea for composers. They can hear directly from players about what works, what doesn't. And you could hear the gratitude that these composers had for this opportunity to hear directly from players, like what works and what doesn't. It was awesome. I, I, I wish there was more of that in the world. Oh, man. It just makes me think of so many times where it's it's so simple. People are afraid of asking questions. I don't know why. I think the smartest people in this world ask questions. And uh, it makes me think of another opera. I was playing bass trombone on an opera we premiered a few years ago. Again, I will not say the name. But there was a... I showed I showed my bass trombone part to Jeff D, the bass trombone of the Pittsburgh Symphony, and he just started laughing. There was like cup mute below the staff, like pedal notes at like... 200 16th note double tonguing stuff it was just i mean one conversation (laughs) i had to rewrite like the whole part i I should get an arranging credit on that thing (laughs) oh man yeah I, i remember playing something that had rapid jumps of minor 23rds it was like people, 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 people. Like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not going to happen. <laughs> and, yeah. And there is one thing, you know, I, in conversations and, you know, I spent a long time in a group that focused on premiering new works. And there is something to the composer advancing the technique of the instrument and challenging you in new ways. And that, and that is important for the evolution of the instrument and making the players rise to the occasion. But there's some things that are just like physically impossible sometimes or just totally unnecessary yeah this is therapy for me today nick yeah i just i just need to get this out before this rehearsal today like we had something written for us recently at the ballet they had a lot of like open clothes harm and stuff wow wow and it, it was all below the staff in the trigger so i i was like i went up to the composer and i was like this is impossible and he goes why and i said you you have to hold down a valve i i and, and like i can't do the Wawa at the same time as the valves. And he, he was flabbergasted by that. He's like, I don't understand. I try. I sh- but on my computer, it works <laughs> yeah, fine. Exactly. Eventually I understood. Cause I took him into the pit and showed him what I meant. And he's like, Oh wow. Thank you for telling me. And he changed the part. It was great. Um, nice. but yeah, for another thing to take away from this is if you experience that and you do have access to the composer, don't be afraid to talk to them. What's the worst that can happen? They ignore you and you, okay, well you tried. <laughs> And you're like, well, I'll just change your part for you. (laughs) If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes, as it helps us a lot. If you want to leave a question or topic you'd like us to discuss, we'll answer it on the podcast. Follow us at Trombone Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, and our website, tromboneretreat.com, where you can also join our mailing list. 
Also, feel free to shoot us an email at tromboneretreat at gmail.com as we love hearing from you. On Instagram, follow Nick at basstrombone444 and myself at js.vera. And as always, never forget, retreat yourself. <laughs>